Welcome to the History of North America. I'm Mark Vinette. The Plymouth Company was chartered by King James in 1606 with responsibility for colonizing the northern east coast of America. The merchants agreed to finance the settlers' trip in return for repayment of their expenses plus interest out of the profits made. The Plymouth Company established the Popham Colony in present-day Maine, the northern answer to the previously discussed Jamestown Colony, founded by the Virginia Company of London. The Popham Colony was named for its chief investor and Lord Chief Justice of England, Sir John Popham, who presided over the trials of Sir Walter Raleigh and the conspirators of the gunpowder plot, including Guy Fawkes. Eric Yanis of the Other States of America podcast has graciously agreed to share his telling of this incredible story. Sir Ferdinando Gorgias. Sounds like an Iberian prince, but he was as English as they came. He fought the Spanish Armada at sea. He fought bravely in the wars of continental Europe. He had friends and connections in the court of Queen Elizabeth. He was distantly related to the Gilberts and the Rileys, and certainly cut from the same cloth. In 1591, for his bravery, he was knighted. And if we quickly fast forward to the year 1601, Ferdinando was working as the commander of the fort at Plymouth. Plymouth, England, that is. An important job at the front line of the defense of England, should Spain send yet another armada in its direction. A proven and useful subject of Queen Elizabeth. And so it must have been a strange day when the party he fell in with started taking hostages sent straight from the royal court, one of which was Sir John Popham, Lord Chief Justice of England. Popham was an old man, but there was a rumor about his early days in his youth where he was a highwayman, and he was known for his severe sentences, many being executions, including that of Mary, Queen of Scots, and for men especially, the slow process of drawing and quartering. Sir Ferdinando Gorgias Staring into Popham's cold, steely eyes, must have sensed that Popham had no fear of this situation, declaring at his advanced age that his assassination would only shave off a couple years. But in Ferdinando's mind, him being quite a bit younger, is now a co-conspirator in a plot that involves taking hostage the head of the judicial arm of Queen Elizabeth's government. In what started as a power move to influence the makeup of Queen Elizabeth's court, only to have all the vestiges of a full-on rebellion. What is Sir Ferdinando to do? Sir John Popham and Sir Ferdinando Gorgias, and where these two men seem to intertwine most dramatically, is right here in 1601, during the rebellion of the Earl of Essex, who gathered around himself people who were unhappy with the court of Queen Elizabeth, not specifically wanting to overthrow the queen, but wanting to reconstitute who was in her court, who ran the government of England. Sir Ferdinando Gorgias supposedly being one of these people. However, when push came to shove, it was Sir Ferdinando Gorgias that rescued John Popham, placed the old man in a boat, and personally rowed the man to safety. And in fact, somehow all of the hostages that Essex took were gone before the key moment where they would be used as leverage. One would suspect that Sir Ferdinando Gorgias was an agent of the Queen's court the entire time. However, after rescuing Sir John Popham, there was a time where Sir Ferdinando Gorgias was stripped of his command and imprisoned 
only to thereafter be shortly freed based on his rescue of Sir John Popham and his cooperation and outing all of his co-conspirators. Either way, the two men, if not before, were now close associates of one another. And by 1603, Sir Ferdinando Gorgias was back at his command at the fort at Plymouth, England, just in time to see the West Country flush with sassafras, brought in by an expedition financed by Sir Walter Riley to an area they called North Virginia or Norumbega that we would call New England, but also the cargo of another man, Bartholomew Gosnold, who went to the same area and got the same product and flushed the same markets. And so Sir Walter Riley, citing his rights of monopolization and exclusivity, going back to the failed colony of Roanoke and even further back to the rights of his half-brother, Sir Humphrey Gilbert, sought to sue Gosnold out of existence along with his two half-nephews, who happened to help Gosnold in his expedition. Obviously, with all this hubbub, there was a lot of money involved, a lot of profit to be made. Riley's expedition left no account, but two people on Gosnold's expedition and his subsequently short-lived colony left accounts. Only one would be published many years from now in 1625, because right now it described where and how and the conditions of how to make a great deal of money off these New World goods. And so the trade remained clandestine, But Sir Ferdinando Gorgias was in a unique position to receive all sorts of information on ways he could make profit. Insider trading, perhaps. One of the accounts left by Gosnold was written by John Brereton. Now, Gorgias had a friend named Sir William Brereton. They may have been related. But even without this connection, being the commander of the fort at the port of Plymouth meant he was wise to all the ingoing and outgoing information, all the rumors and gossip from all the sailors. And he himself, being a distant relation of Sir Walter Riley, could receive information about the New World and the area we call New England from both sides of these lawsuits. His interest was piqued. And suddenly, Ferdinando Gorges had a little extra time on his hand, because at the beginning of the 17th century, the wars with Spain between England and Spain were winding down. So instead of consuming his thoughts with protecting England from a possible new armada from Spain... He could now think about how to use his position to enrich himself and his friends. And so in 1603, Gorgias sought to replicate Gosnold's journey, only this time under the permission of Sir Walter Riley, so there wouldn't be any lawsuits. He gets that permission, and then he sends out a ship commanded by Martin Pring, and he takes the same route that Gosnold took, going south via the Azor Islands to the area that we now call New England. This is why many historians think that they had knowledge of Gosnold's journey, which again had yet to be published, but was known among a select few in this network. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-218-6010. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in, anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-218-6010. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-218-6010. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. Pring's expedition was profitable, 
And he spent about six weeks in and around the area that the Wampanoag people called Patuxet. And why that's significant is because that would be, in the future, Plymouth. The Plymouth in New England, not old. He even spent time with the natives and described their agriculture and different aspects of their society as far as he could discern. So years before the Plymouth settlers, the so-called pilgrims, Martin Pring is already there, one of Gorgeous's men. Samuel de Champlain, he already shows up at Patuxet, years before the pilgrims. This idea that the Wampanoag didn't know what the English were about or the European traders who showed up on the shores were all about, that's just a lie. The Wampanoag were very well informed as to what Europeans wanted from them. But events back in merry old England would take precedent over all of this because Queen Elizabeth I has passed away. The Elizabethan era is over and she has no heir. Very famously, she was known as the Virgin Queen. Whether that be true or not, she had no legitimate children. As was the law and custom, well, this would now default to her full-blooded, legitimate siblings, fathered by her father, Henry VIII. Well, those siblings were Edward VI and Bloody Mary, who were both regents in their own time and were predecessors to Queen Elizabeth. She was the end of the line. As such, you need to go back further. So Henry VIII had a father named Henry VII. Let's look at his family. That's where the new king or queen will have to come from. Well, it turns out King James VI of Scotland is the great, great grandson of Henry VII of England. But he is so twice through both his mother and his father, having the nation of Scotland under his command and significant support from nobility in England. This made him the presumed heir to the throne of England after Elizabeth would pass. But of course, this didn't come without opposition. A personal union of the Kingdom of Scotland and England would be threatening to everyone else in continental Europe because you always want to deal with two small enemies or rivals rather than one medium-sized rival. Also, many of the Catholic countries like France wanted to continue to push England back into the fold of the Latin Church. King James VI of Scotland would not be that individual. And so this very same year as the Pring Expedition, and this agreement between Gorgias and Sir Walter Riley, there was a vague plot where a large sum of money was being transferred from one of these Catholic kings in continental Europe to certain individuals within England to start funding seditious activities that would ultimately undermine the leadership of King James VI of Scotland, now King James I of England, and put on the throne either a Catholic relative of his or someone who was at least pro-Catholic or Catholic-tolerant who meanwhile, by the way, could be under the influence of these very same foreign powers funding this plot. Eventually, investigators would come to call this the main and by plot. There was a main plot and a side plot, and it's kind of vague how it all fits together. But one of the prominent individuals who were supposed to be in receipt of this huge amount of funds from the continent was Sir Walter Riley, governor of the island of Jersey. Like his distant cousin Gorgias, he was responsible for a vulnerable area that needed a prominent and capable person to help protect it and organize its defense. But from that same location, he could receive a boatload of silver and gold to help seed sedition. King James, being wise to this plot, had Riley and others imprisoned. Riley himself was held in the Tower of London. The truth of the matter is, King James just hated Sir Walter Riley, and he hated tobacco, the smell of it, the smoke, the dirtiness it causes, and he blamed Riley for having made tobacco popular in England. And that might be a misattribution, but it doesn't matter because he's the king and that's what he thinks. 
King James even wrote tracts about how tobacco was just a terrible thing to bring into a family household or just to use in general. So let's bring all these pieces together now. Sir Walter Riley, the man who holds all these rights and privileges in the New World, is on trial for a plot against King James himself. Who would preside over such a trial? None other than Sir John Popham. Now what's interesting about Popham is that he also presided over the trial that eventually led to the execution of Queen Mary, Queen of Scots, who is none other than King James's mother. It seems like he was silent or indifferent on the death of his mother by the time he assumed the crown of England. Of course, he would have to be in order to maintain a comfortable power base. So not only had Sir John Popham survived the killing of the future king's mother, but now passed a death sentence on Sir Walter Riley. Taken from the Tower of London, Sir Walter Riley stood on the gallows, and it said at the very last second, King James commuted his sentence. At the precipice of death, he was pulled back at the last second. Not because King James liked Riley any more than he did before, but maybe perhaps because he wanted him to suffer a little longer. But instead of being released or restored to any of his rights and privileges, he was put right back in that tower. So Sir Walter, for now, will live. But his claims and monopolies on the new world, and in the English eyes, were all gone, vacated, canceled out. Sir Humphrey Gilbert, many decades before this time, and his half-brother, Sir Walter Riley, had been the innovators to English colonization of the New World. But in these later years, Sir Walter Riley had become more of a stumbling block, more interested in domestic affairs, and as we've seen from the lawsuits, he actually stopped English colonization from progressing at the rate it naturally would have had he not been in the way. Well, now he's out of the way, just in time for the English to compete with the French, who are now showing up in New England and making settlements. King James could now reorganize how these privileges were distributed among the English concerning the New World along a more organized basis, something more modern to their times, something that the merchant adventurers of England would understand. And so not long after avoiding Sir Walter Riley's rights and privileges, he forms the King's Council of Virginia. Now, this is neither the Plymouth Company nor the Virginia Company that you might have learned about in school. That'll all come afterward. But on this council were Sir Fernando Gorgias and Sir John Popham. As soon as Sir Walter Riley's rights were out of the way, Gorgias and Popham, they pounced, and they filled the void that they might have had some part in creating. Check out the YouTube version of this episode, which has accompanying images. I'm Mark Vinette, and I hope you're enjoying the ride. The Historical Jesus Podcast is the sweeping saga of the life and times of Galilean Jesus of Nazareth, as well as the faith, religion, and church founded to honor and disseminate his acts and teachings. Join me, Mark Vinette, on this fascinating journey through time, exploring the many great works of Christian theology, literature, architecture, music, and art inspired by the words and deeds of Jesus Christ.